You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicholas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St Andrews. Our guest today is Diana Forster, an artist with a degree in botany and a background in publishing. We've invited her onto our podcast today after learning about some of the really thought-provoking war art she's created, which tells less well-known stories about ordinary people's experiences in World War II. Her work has some really interesting things to teach us about our habits of visualizing war, about how we tend to imagine certain wars and conflict in general, and also about the interventions that art can make, how the use of different angles or unexpected perspectives can disrupt and actually extend the ways in which we look at war. So we're really excited to be talking to her today. Diana, hello and welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. Hello, thank you. Can you start by telling our listeners a bit about your background and your journey to becoming a professional artist? Yes, um, I studied science at school, which meant I had to drop art, and, um, but I carried on drawing. I've always drawn. Um, and I did a degree in botany and then uh, went into teaching for a bit and then into educational publishing. I um, carried on drawing. <laughs> um, and then as I was approaching retirement, I realized it was a chance to study art very seriously at last. So I applied to Oxford Brookes University to do first of all a foundation and then a degree course in um, contemporary fine art. I, um, we had to make very big projects there. And of course I had to start thinking about what I was going to uh, concentrate on. And that's when I just decided to work on my mother's story. And uh, your time studying botany um, has inspired you to create some art around scientific themes and your publishing experience has led to experiments with the digital art. Um, but I think it was um, the, the family story that you just uh, mentioned that motivated you to, to start uh, delving deeper into uh, conflict through art. Um, so uh, could you tell us a bit more about this, this personal story that inspires your, um, your art that is centered on conflict? Yes, my mother was born in Eastern Poland. And um, when Stalin invaded Eastern Poland, he had lists of Polish families to deport. And my family, my grandfather, had fought in the Polish army in the Polish-Soviet war, uh, which didn't endear him to um, Stalin. So it wasn't just my grandfather, it was the whole family who were then deported to uh, a labor camp in Siberia. And, and they weren't alone. I mean, there were lots of families, um, families of soldiers who had fought in the Polish-Soviet war, who'd then been given little patches of land around villages. So there were quite a number of them. And they were all put on trains and they didn't know where they were going. And it was February and winter and very, very cold. They were in cattle trucks and they traveled for about two weeks to actually, it wasn't geographically Siberia, it was um, the Archangelsk region. But the Polish people uh, just have in their heads that they're being exiled to Siberia. So my mother always talked about it in those terms. And when they finally got to the labor camp, it was a logging camp. They, it was in the forest. They had to cut down trees, chop them up take them to the river. That was the work they had to do on starvation rations in temperatures of minus 40 degrees centigrade. Uh, and of course, they, they, they were in a terrible physical state. People were dying all the time. So the Russians, they weren't concentration camps in the way we think of concentration camps. They weren't death camps, except they were in a way because they were so expendable, these poor people. Um, that nobody, the Russians didn't take care of them in any way. Um, so my mother was there for about 18 months until Stalin, until Hitler invaded Russia, Stalin joined the Allies 
And then this, uh, negotiations took place to release these people from these labor camps. Because of course there were men in the camps who could form an army to fight against Hitler, the war was still on. So that's when they were released from the labor camp. And they, I mean, they weren't, they weren't helped in any way. They, they just had to get on trains again. But recruitment centers for this army were being set up in um, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan in Soviet Central Asia. So the men and their families all traveled down to these recruitment centers. And my grandfather and my mother's older brother joined up uh, to, to the Polish Second Corps, it was called, this army, Polish army on Russian soil. Um, and the women and children, well, everyone had to keep working apart from the people who were joining, the men who were joining up. So my mother was feeding silkworms because uh, Uzbekistan is on the Silk Road. <laughs> that was her job. And then the, the Second Polish Army was removed across the Caspian Sea into Persia, as it was then, Iran. And the women and children went with them. But it was a terrible journey across the Caspian Sea, two or three days on a dirty old coal transporting boats. And people were still dying. They were in such poor physical shape. In fact, no, my grandfather died in Uzbekistan. He, um, so many people were ill and yes, in such poor physical shape after 18 months in a labor camp. So, uh, and then what to do with the families, the men all went off to fight in Palestine and um, at Monte Cassino. So my mother's older brother fought at Monte Cassino and survived. The women and children, they decided, or somebody decided, they could sit out the war in the British colonies down the east coast of Africa. So they had this incredible journey <laughs> then from um, Iran down to Karachi by boat down to my mother, well, to Mombasa. And my family ended up in the largest refugee camp in Tan Tanganyika, a camp called Tengeru where they could slowly recuperate from all their terrible experiences, except they then had to get used to snakes and tropical diseases of all kinds. <laughs> but they, they were warm at last, and the British had actually employed local African labor to build um, traditional mud huts. And it was quite nice. You know, they were built in rows, and there, were, there was a community center, and they were given rations. And they soon established gardens um, to grow food for themselves. And my mother then uh, got a job in Nairobi um, after a while as a nanny to an English family and um, didn't speak any English and had to learn it. Uh, she spoke Swahili by then. So <laughs> her languages were Polish, Russian, Ukrainian, Swahili, and then English. Um, and she... My father was a friend of the family, so that's how they met. And my brother and I were born in Nairobi and lived there till I was 11. That's an absolutely incredible story. And uh, we are so happy to have you with us today because one of the things obviously that we want to do in this, in this project is also to, to challenge intuitive conceptions about how we think about war. And uh, what, one of these um, uh, one of the things that comes out very clearly from your mother's story and, and your artwork is that talking about war is not just talking about battle, it's not just talking about death on the battlefield, but it's also talking about all the other different ways in which lots of people are impacted by war and, uh, and, and, and warfare. We really are we're really uh, glad to have this opportunity um, to explore those angles of um, of war um, with you here today. If I can sort of follow up from your from your story, I think one of the questions that I have is: given that your mother's life was so full of fascinating events and turns and and experiences, there must have been an important reason why you chose conflict. As, um, as one of the aspects that you wanted to focus on in your artwork rather than her childhood or uh, her life in the UK or um, the time as a nanny, all of which would have made probably fantastic material for artwork and further exploration. So could you tell us a bit more about what in particular drew you to the displacement and, and the conflict and the wider story of World War II um, for your artwork? Yes, 
it was when I was at Oxford Brooks and having to come up with ideas for these big projects that we had to work on. Um, it was actually a very good art education, I have to say. Um, I was wondering what to do for a very big project. Um, and I, was, I began to think about my mother's story. And one of the stories she told me about life in the camp, um, which it, it's not a, it wasn't a horrible story at all. And I'd gone into the kitchen one day and she was nibbling a cabbage leaf. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing? She was laughing. And she said, well, when we were in the camp and we were starving, the guards actually had a garden and, and they were growing cabbages in the garden. Uh, we weren't allowed to eat them, of course, but as children or young people, she was 16 then, we'd crawl on our hands and knees at night and nibble the leaves. And the next morning, the guards just thought there was animal damage and um, nobody got punished. Because she was telling me this with sort of this humour, <laughs> um, the story stuck in my head and I thought, actually, I'll, I'll make a cabbage patch. <laughs> and um, so that's what I did. I, um, I made this cabbage patch um, by, I got some Savoy cabbages because uh, they were in season. And actually you can get it, there is a, a Siberian Savoy as well. It's actually, <laughs> and um, I nibbled the leaves like my mother would have done, not on my hands and knees, but, um, and I had discovered this plastic material that you could roll out with a rolling pin until it was very thin. And I pressed it onto the cabbage leaves. So it picked up the veining um, and uh, it looked really, really good. And I stretched it round the nibbles and I made, I think it was 12 or six, 16 cabbages. They were all slightly different. And I placed them on a bed of spent brass cartridge cases and exhibited it. And people were so moved by it. I was astonished. Um, and I, I began to, I mean, they, they, they were drawn to it because it turned out to be very beautiful. And, but then they'd read the wall text explaining what it was about. And some people were then really confused because they had really liked the work. They'd liked its aesthetic qualities. <laughs> and then they'd read the story, <laughs> didn't know how to feel. And I thought, I think I want to work on this. I want to develop this idea further. People can engage with what you're showing them. They're drawn to it and not repelled by it like so many images of war. This is, this is not that at all. And how can I make more work like this that people are drawn to? And the story slowly unfolds um, in a very unthreatening way. And people are learning and they go away thinking about it. Instead of the, the images that we see on our television screens and in the press, which now some of them have been so horrific, we don't want to look at them anymore. We switch off. We've become desensitized when we shouldn't be but we can't you know we can't blame ourselves for not wanting to look at these images. That's really fascinating Diana just to hear that um, story of how you you came to represent or you came to think about how to represent conflict through art through this very personal moment in your mother's life this this memory from your own childhood in fact. Um, I should say just just butting in actually that listeners can view some of Diana's work both on her website www.dianaforster.com and also through a blog on the Visualising War Project website. Could I uh, ask a follow-up questions on the cabbage leaves because I found that um, I found that very fascinating and I, I looked at them obviously on the on the website and they are beautiful and what, one of the things that I was interested in is as you were uh, telling the story behind those leaves now as well when did this um, this aesthetic aspect of the cabbage leaves when did this become important to you because you, you obviously started the cabbage leaves out of the personal story of your mother you were probably weren't thinking of them as particularly as, as something that might be aesthetically pleasing as well so I'm just quite interested in this process as to when when did these cabbage leaves sort of turn into art and when did you start to appreciate that despite the sad story that was that was linked to the cabbage leaves there was also this kind of aesthetically really sort of pleasing aspect to them. I looked at lots of ways to create the cabbages. When I decided to make a cabbage patch, <laughs> I thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this. You know, do I 
look for plastic cabbages online. <laughs> you buy plastic cabbages. I discovered this plastic material called polymorph, which is a, a plastic for craft purposes. You know, it's very easy to handle. So I bought some and you, you put it in hot water. It, it, it looks like rice. You put it in hot water and it melts and then you can draw out this big lump and roll it out. When I did that and, and made it very thin and pressed it on the Savoy cabbage leaf, when I lifted it off, I thought, it's beautiful. <laughs> My goodness, I wasn't expecting that result because uh, I was thinking, well, it's white. Polymorph is white, so I'll get some green food colouring. You know, I'll do something to make it green. It's a cabbage. <laughs> and then, no, looking at the white, um, it was sort of um, ethereal, ghostly. I, I really liked it. It is. It's it's spectacularly beautiful. I hope you won't be um, offended by this. But when I looked at it, when I looked at the images on your on your website, um, I think one of the things that struck me about it was the fact that I've been brought up on Beatrix Potter stories. And the most famous one of those is Peter Rabbit, who goes into Mr. McGregor's garden and is constantly stealing things from the cabbage patch or the lettuce patch and so on. And I just found it incredibly powerful to have that image of a beautiful vegetable patch, a cabbage patch, completely transformed for me with the spent bullet cases that, that you don't see at first glance and that then sit beneath these nibbled cabbage leaves. As you say, like the, the, the camp guards themselves, you look at it first of all and think, ah, oh, maybe animals have been nibbling these leaves. And then you learn the story. And it's so powerful because of that contrast with the innocence of, of the Beatrix Potter story and the innocence of the sort of the initial appearance, the beauty of those cabbages. Diana, can you tell us uh, about some of the other aspects of your mother's journey and her experience um, as, a, as, a, as a displaced person that you've decided to represent in art? I, um, I wanted to sort of tell the whole story of the, um, the deportations, a little narrative. Um, and I wanted to use the Polish folk art. It's called Wycinanki. It's the um, folded paper which they cut with sheep shears. That was the traditional way of doing it. Um, I think the, the best way to explain it is to, when we were children, we used to fold paper and cut snowmen. You, you unfold the paper and you've got a whole row of snowmen. It's a bit like that. So it was very naive, very symmetrical. And um, I thought I can appropriate this in some way um, to tell the story. So. I did this and created six panels that sort of tell the, that there's, it, the, there's the train that they had to get on. And then the, I used the words for in Polish of Siberia, Sibir. And uh, I laser cut these panels from Russian birch plywood. So I created, I drew in Adobe Illustrator and then sent the files off to be laser cut. So, yes, I haven't cut them out of with sheep shears. I did buy a pair of sheep shears at a, a, a country fair. Um, so I thought I might try and do this myself. But no, I, I decided to have the panels cut from birch plywood. Um, so that's that was one. So, so I could tell the whole story. There's one. One of the panels is of the camp and the last panel is of a cemetery because they, they could actually bury the people who died. So that was one aspect, you know, that was another bit of the, the story that I wanted to tell. And since oh, I made some big posters in the style of uh, Russian posters during the revolution, which were of course glorifying the Soviet Union and um, communism, but mine are um, not like that, they're ironic posters. So they're actually saying, um, here you shall live, and um, he who does not work does not eat. So the things that the Polish refugees were told, um, I've made these uh, three posters, which very much in that style, but saying something quite different. And then I began to turn my attention to you know, the rest of the journey down through Uzbekistan. I, and I, wanted to, I want to make more work there because um, I have made a sort of sculpture using silkworm cocoons, a little hanging sculpture. But there's more to be explored there uh, because the more research I do, the more interesting things come up. Like just recently, I discovered that um, a lot of the orphans, because of course, parents died, you know, there were children without, without families. 
um, orphanages were established for them in Iran, in Isfahan. The Iranian people were so welcoming, even some nobility made their palaces available as orphanages for these children because the climate in Isfahan was, was very good. Um, they could recover from all their ordeal. And, and a friend of mine who's been to Isfahan said she saw this building and it said Polish orphanage above the door. And she, you know, in Isfahan, what on the earth is that about? Um, so I was able to tell her. And then uh, um, I've been making some work to uh, around the camp in um, Tengeru, camp in Tanganyika. One one of the things that I that I love about these uh, this artwork and uh, especially what you were just saying about the orphanage is the way in which it brings out the traces that that wars leave in you know even today in communities and brings out something that we are quite interested in is are these is this kind of this deep historical link that we find between present and past whether it's the more recent past or whether it's the present and the ancient past this the retracing the ways in which these events sort of form cityscapes, landscapes. And I, I think I find it really fascinating the way in which your, your art sort of brings out these things and connects with this, yeah, with this kind of historical depth that, that the displacement and the war uh, sort of has brought to bear on these, uh, on these places. Yes, and the cemeteries, um, they're, they're, of course, the camps are no longer there in East Africa, but um, the campus in Tang, um, Tengeru in Tanganyika was very successful. The Poles, who all came from uh, rural backgrounds, you know, small, my grandfather had a small farm. So they all knew about keeping animals and growing things, and they established a very good farm there. So when the uh, camp was finally wound down, the government took over the, the, the farm and it turned it into an agricultural college. And they kept the cemetery because I think there are about 180 Polish people buried in the cemetery, because of course they still died, you know, some of them just from old age, some of them were ill. Um, and the cemetery is beautifully looked after, but it's there in um, the village. Well, the village is called Tengeru. And the same in Uzbekistan, we've discovered recently my grandfather's grave in Uzbekistan. Um, we didn't, we knew he died there, but we didn't know if he even had a grave. Um, whether there was just a, they had to be married, buried in communal graves. They were, so many of them were dying. Um, but no, he has a grave and we've got some people in Uzbekistan trying to actually pinpoint it and take a photograph of it. We know which cemetery it's in. But. So, and a Polish priest who found himself, he knew nothing, none of this history. He found himself in Uzbekistan and found himself looking at Polish names on graves and wondering what on earth it was all about. I think that's really interesting. You just said a, a Polish priest knew none of this history. And just the short time that I've been engaging with your art has taught me so much more than I already knew or thought I knew about World War II. And I think that's one of the things, again, that we're really interested in from the project's perspective, the way in which um, art, all sorts of other kinds of narrative can open up new perspectives you're showing the everyday you're showing the whole ripple of effects that that war has in many different ways and the just the geographical scope of your mother's journey is extraordinary as well as as Nicholas has said the traces that it's left the layers of history um, that that ha have been triggered through it we've talked a little bit about how beautiful your artwork is it doesn't look like typical war art and I think that's absolutely intentional isn't it um, I, I know that for example your your panels of woodcut um, the, the the story of the Polish camp you back light them and at first glance they just they look like almost a sort of Christmas scene they're so exquisite are you consciously trying to resist very particular habits of representing war which we're perhaps familiar with from the art we see in museums for example or films or photography from 21st century war zones yes I am because I know that so much of that sort of artwork and especially the photojournalism of um, just turns people away, and some of it's so horrific. Um, Jeffrey Hartland, who I think is a literary theorist, I, I, I discovered him through some reading when I was at Brooks. 
he talks about a secondary traumatization. So you may not have witnessed the actual event, but looking at an image of it can induce this secondary traumatization and you just shut down. You can't engage with the image in any way. So you don't continue to think about it. Um, you, you just, in fact, you, the image might have stuck itself in your mind and all you want to do is get rid of it and you can't, it's, it's kind of there. Um, and it, it just, it seems to me that that's, yeah, we need, we need to know what's happening in war. We need to see these images to know how bad it is. But on the other hand, to stop people from shutting down and becoming desensitized, we have to find another way to engage people, especially when we're thinking about education and teaching younger people um, about what can happen when hate gets the upper hand. You know, this is what happens. This is what people do to each other. They become brutalized. And um, so I've been looking at, well, when I made my cabbage patch and realized that this was a way of engaging people um, I really wanted to think about that more and more. And um, in fact, I, that's what I did for my, my undergraduate thesis at Brooks, looking at affect, how art works, um, and reading about affect, um, and how it can, if, if, if an, a, an artwork has affect, you're looking at it, you're then gripped to engage with it, you're sort of drawn into thinking about it, um, engaging intellectually with what you're seeing. Um, it sustains sen sensation, which is another thing I came, well, it was Gilles Deleuze's uh, definition of art, um, sustaining sensation. And I really like that. So I think if you, if you can create an artwork that does that, where people, um, they don't turn away. The story underneath can be very ugly, but that it's not thrown in their faces. Um, and it gives them, if you create that kind of artwork, the chance for them to reimagine, to create their own narratives around what they're seeing. And I realized that was, that's what was happening with the cabbage patch because people would tell me what they'd been seeing <laughs> in it. And it wasn't what I, set out to do at all. Somebody said, oh, those white cabbage leaves, of course, moonlight. That's what they'd look like in moonlight in the, um, <laughs> um, and somebody else said the children will have been getting some vitamin C from those cabbage leaves. And I, <laughs> so people were making, were creating all this, um, all their own uh, imaginings around this. Uh, I think, and I just thought that's, I want to create more work that does that, that, um, gives people space to, um, yes, create their own stories, reimagine, um, yes. <laughs> and, and I think one of the things that I find particularly interesting about this also from um, um, sort of against the background of how war is often represented is that, you know, you have this kind of this gentle effect and you have this uh, the, the contemplation that goes with it and I think that contrasts quite interestingly also with um, uh, representations of battle and war in in movies and films where often of course um, it's it's not meant to be negative as such it has its own aesthetics it's meant to draw people in um, but it's also very dynamic very quick the action of battle so that people don't really have time to think about individual scenes individual events that they see or think about much about um, what's going on around the battlefield or um, what's the larger context of this and what I find so interesting about your artwork is that you're taking the exact opposite approach you're still talking about war but you're doing it in a completely different way that's sort of really meant to to encourage people to start figuring out what yes what they're seeing what is the shade the the shadow of the of the wood cuttings that they're seeing what does this mean um to dig deeper which is often something that's maybe not uh, associated directly with representations of war and battle no um very realistic representations, so photojournalism and those um, war paintings 
there's no room to reimagine. You know, there's the image. <laughs> That's it. You're sort of stuck with it. And film too. Yes, I was thinking about film earlier, but um, it's all happening so quickly and, and that's it. You're just watching it frame after frame after frame um, and it's gone. You might think about it afterwards, but... I think one of the things that your art does rather brilliantly is combine impactful images. So a single snapshot of a cabbage patch, snapshots of camp life, these posters, these fantastic posters that are ironic, but with more of a, a journey of learning around them. So obviously your woodcuts, you've created a series of them that take people through a chronological journey. And then the wider set of art takes us all, not just through your mother's journey, but through this learning journey. So there's this combination of memorable takeaways from your art, the, the, the small image of the, well not, it was a large, um, exhibit in fact the cabbage patch but this very focused in image that is memorable and that tells a whole huge story of its own uh, uh, you're, you're combining those snapshots with this broader journey that you allow viewers to to take at their own pace in a sense and to do their own thinking on yes I think that it's really important to let people uh, take their own time over these things. Um, some people might not be at all interested. Well, that's fine, you know. And other people um, may not have known the story and may become, you know, may wish they had known about it um, and may want to spend a long time looking at it. Uh, yes, I think, and of course you can't do that if, you, if you're watching a film or um, some other... But the, the thing is, I was thinking about this too, that my work, and um, there are some other artists who make work that I admire, they make work in the same vein. It's not, not seen by very many people. When you consider how many people are watching the news, seeing these images on, uh, on the media, on reading in the press and seeing the pictures, but these art exhibitions, yes, you may get quite a few people going, but it's really quite a small audience when you consider the the alter you know the alternative presentation of war and the images far more people see those than would have attend an exhibition and spend time quietly i if i may i wanted to follow up on um on another thing you were just uh, saying about how people engage with 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 your artwork and then they come up with their own stories uh, linked to this and I think one of the things that is quite distinctive also of, you, of your artwork is because it is so beautiful at first sight um, it does to an extent need the text so people need to be sort of led via the, um, the, the artwork to the text that explains what's behind it so one of the things I guess I'm, I'm wondering about is to, to what extent uh, sort of, are you are you worried if if people don't read the text? What happens if they don't read the text and then they come up with their own stories that maybe have nothing to do with the original link between the the piece of art that you created and the story that lies behind it? Uh, it doesn't worry me <laughs> if they like the piece and they you know put their own story on it. Um, that's fine. I think it's a pity if they don't read the wall text. You've talked about the fact that people bring their own understanding and their own imagining to your art. But what are you really trying to communicate with it about war, do you think? What lessons about war, what, um, what ideas about conflict are you trying to get across with this art? I think it what ordinary people go through, because it takes a huge leap of imagination, trying to put yourself in their shoes is actually very difficult because I spent years with my mother. She was unable to talk about her experiences very much. So occasionally she found herself able to tell us a story. And once my brother and I did ask her to tell us more about it, but she got very upset when she was telling us. Yes, it's about ordinary people suffering. So I couldn't put myself in my mother's shoes until fairly recently because I had these stories and I, um, she'd, she'd described some conditions in the camp, but there were no written accounts. Well, I have since discovered that there were, there are some, but they weren't um, easily available. But no sort of 
memoirs written by people that you could pick up and read. And it was only when they started appearing and I started to read those that I, be I began to understand just how awful it really was. And even now, sometimes I think of, of, you know, how cold she must have been and how hungry and how ill she was sometimes. But she just, you know, they just carried on. They didn't have medicines. So putting yourself in their shoes, I think I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to say, look, this is what it was really like, or this is what it is really like. For those people in Yemen and in Syria, it's horrible. A lot of those people who are, who are having to flee, who are having to leave their homes, and they don't know where they're going. They have no idea of what their future is going to be. And I think this is where the real accessibility of your art comes in. It allows people to connect, as we've been saying, with, with these stories, with this suffering, with what ordinary people went through in a way that great scenes of pitched battle are quite distancing and keep us a long way apart from the costs and the consequences and the, the human element of it all. Yes, I agree, absolutely. I think that's, that's what's happening. Or, you know, young people watching war films and playing computer games, um, they're not learning about, uh, no, actually for the ordinary people in the surroundings there or who are having to flee their homes because these bombs are being dropped by drones. This is what it's like for them. And I, I would really like to be able to communicate that with my artwork. I, I think that's probably often the problem that, you know, how, how do you communicate those experiences uh, of, of wars that are going on or wars in the past um, what you were saying about about your mother that is that is something obviously that rings true from a very different perspective but also for me with my grandfather who of course was in the German army so not, not the kind of army you would have wanted to be in but in terms of the, the the trauma of the fighting I know that he never talked about these things he had nightmares and you know and, and pretty much until the, the day he died he would never communicate about these things and I think there's a there's a there's a real chance here to sort of communicate and talk about the things without the the people who are suffering them or have suffered them having to do it themselves. So we, we, we can create a way in which we can still have access to, to these experiences also for ourselves and for our own good, um, but we can overcome sort of the blockage that comes with the trauma. I think that's a really important point. One of my mother's friends who ended up, she'd made the same journey as my mother, married an Englishman, ended up in England, working in the building society and sitting at the desk next to her, this woman, how, how come you ended up in this country, you know, if you're Polish? So my mother's friend told her the story and she didn't believe her. She said, well, if you went through that, how come you're still alive? <laughs> I, I think for some, for some people, the story from the person sitting next to you in the office telling you this, you, you can hardly believe it. You know, it's so outside your own experience to have someone you have coffee with every morning, say, actually, this is what it was like for me. For Before I set out on this, I hadn't really realised how difficult it can be to communicate these things. And perhaps artwork is, can do more than I thought it could. This also takes us back to the sort of um, uh, interrelationship that you established between the artwork and the text, where um, we, we, we come to a point where um, the, the text itself, whether it's orally presented as a narrative or as a, as a written account, um, simply comes to certain limits that it has in communicating these things. So they, 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 there's a very interesting uh, sort of questions that come out of your work of where, where text or specific ways of communicating just simply reach their natural limits and where you can bring different ways of communicating together in order to overcome those limits and, and, and get your point across despite the, the limits of the individual um, forms of narrative that you bring together. I was trying to think about text and um, because if I'm, if I had just written down the story of the cabbages and people had read it, they would be creating their own images. I mean, you create mental images as you read, but I don't know everybody's what images they would be, um, but they certainly wouldn't be creating an image like the one I'm putting in front of them of white cabbages and spent brass cartridge cases. I think with artwork, you can make layers and layers and layers. Um, a good 
complex piece of artwork should have so many layers that you can, you can actually spend a lot of time with it and peel them away and look at each one. And that perhaps that's why photographs um, of, from photojournalism of um, terrible events, it's just the one image. There are no layers to it. You're just looking at this kind of freeze frame moment. There's nothing to sort of peel away really. And yet, as you mentioned earlier, they are the images that tend to impact on more people than, let's say, art. And I think what, what you've talked about today has shown us the power of art to stretch our understanding and uh, stretch our habits of visualising war. But you also, you, you mentioned, you know, contemporary conflicts in Syria, in Yemen. And I got the impression that you what you really want to do with your art is is change how people think about uh, contemporary conflicts, not simply uh, the, the conflict that your mother lived through. Uh, but you also raised this question about, well, what reach can art have? Do you think that we can do more somehow as museums, as, uh, um, you know, can artists do more? What could we do to address that balance um, where the majority of our media and the majority of narratives that we are surrounded with about war are the much more high stakes dramatic, the emphasis on the soldier, the emphasis on the action, the ruined buildings, the sort of the, the, the physical destruction. How can we balance that up with this wider lens, this, this, this bigger perspective that stretches our understanding of war? I think you can probably do a lot with um young people. Um, so certainly museums and art galleries showing this kind of work more. And of course, now there are opportunities opening up for more online exhibitions, which will have larger audiences. But I exhibited my work in Poland and I was invited there by my cousins who really wanted the young people um, at school to see this um, because they don't know about it. In Poland, once they were um, under the Russians after the Second World War, nobody was allowed to talk about the deportations. They didn't happen, you know. <laughs> the Russians are friends, they, they, they wouldn't have done that. So there are lots of Polish people who, didn't, who don't know about it. Of course, those um, who've got families who went through it know about it, but they weren't supposed to talk about it. But it was a wonderful opportunity. My cousins who've got contacts in education departments and so on, parties of school children came to see the exhibitions. So that was one way of uh, trying to get more people to view art, view war through this lens. And the other way, I suppose, is to try and get it onto um, television, more interested in. I was just thinking about we, we, we now have slow radio and slow <laughs> television where you sit and watch the front of a canal boat for an hour. <laughs> Perhaps we could do something like that, where you show an artwork and the camera travels round it and zooms in and zooms out. And I think it would make a, a, a very great difference to to the to way um, in which we think about war, because again, you know, as, as as we were saying earlier, the the first thing that comes to mind maybe when when we when we hear war, when we say you know war, is is the battle, is the action, and you know you, your work makes us think you know maybe the first thing when we hear war that we should think about is the impact on the personal lives, uh, the the way in which it's it you know the displacements, the 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 families torn apart, and I think in the in the public perception, you know war is still very much kind of anchored to the action on the battlefield rather than actually much bigger surroundings of those individual encounters on the battlefield. I think one of the other things that I've really taken away from your art is the combination of light and dark. The fact that so many representations of war home in on the horror or the um, or death, the fighting. And your art takes a really interesting angle, looking at the highs and the lows, the fact that, that, that there was life amid all this suffering and not just life, but children, children who played actually pranks as part of their survival on camp guards, for example, that there were trees amongst all the crosses, that there was life, even though there were camp guards looking down from their towers. And it's that complexity, it's that mix that I think is one of the things that I really take away from your art. 
Yes, especially about children in the camps, because children will be children anywhere. My family in the, in the labour camp, it was my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, her older brother, two younger brothers and a younger sister. And the two younger brothers were always getting into trouble. You know, <laughs> they were just being children, except they were hungry all the time and, you know, cold and they got ill, but they were still children. Yes, life, life went on. So I, I guess what I want to do is circle back for a moment uh, to you as an artist and the inspiration um, behind your um, work. And we have talked about the kinds of war arts that, um, that you've tried to avoid. But uh, I wonder, has there also been uh, any war art that inspired you? Have you come across artists that do things maybe in a similar way or in a, in a, in, in a sort of in a kindred way um, that was inspirational for your own work? Yes, there are uh, three or four artists whose work I really admire. Cornelia Parker made a wonderful piece called War Room, which um, she was asked to do something for the anniversary of the First World War. And she went to a poppy factory and was looking at the rolls of paper from which they punch out the poppies. And she collected lots of these rolls of paper and then lined a large room, I think in the Whitworth Gallery in Manchester, creating a sort of chapel, this blood red paper, paper uh, hanging loosely on the walls and from the ceiling with four naked light bulbs. If you went in there, it was an installation, you were completely surrounded. There was no need to explain it. There was no narrative, um, but you were looking at holes in paper, looking through the holes at white walls. And, She was saying, oh, well, and the curator was saying, all these things would be going through people's heads, like, uh, where have all the flowers gone? If you remember the song. And um, some of the holes were white, so the white poppies of peace that the Quakers wear. And all those holes so regimented, like graveyards. Um, and, and they'd been punched out by a machine. So thinking about machine, it, it was just a wonderful piece of work. All these layers and you could spend time thinking and contemplating in there. So that was one wonderful piece of work. And Doris Salcedo, the co Colombian artist, has also made some wonderful work. No bodies, no traumatic images at all, just um, very quiet work that um, makes you think. Jeremy Della, this big installation piece, also um, for the First World War, an anniversary of the First World War, where He had uh, actors who dressed in uh, soldiers' uniforms from the First World War. And I can't remember how many there were, but they popped up in places all over the country, railway stations and outside supermarkets in groups. They'd kept this all very secret, but this was one thing they did tell the BBC about and um, local uh, media, because of course they wanted then on the day everybody to know about it. And in the end, they had a huge audience for an art installation. Lots and lots of people saw it either live or afterwards in the, uh, uh, you know, the recordings. And it was apparently so I didn't unfortunately see any of the live performances, but the soldiers were not to say anything. They were just standing in, silently in groups. Um, now and again, they'd burst into song. If someone went up to them, they'd just simply hand them a card on which the name of a soldier who had died was printed along with his age. <clears throat> yes, that was just another wonderful piece that gave people, people were in tears apparently when they realized what it was they were looking at. So again, affect and, you know, giving rise to thinking and. And that sustained sensation that you talked about as well. I think that's been a theme really of our discussion today, the way in which art prompts thinking, prompts all sorts of kinds of thinking. It doesn't tell you a linear story. It doesn't tell you what to think. It gives you space to think. And art really as a as something that we interact with as we process and think through our own ideas of conflict and war. 
Diana, just uh, sort of to um, to wrap up our, our wonderful discussion today, would you be able to tell us a little bit about um, your plans uh, plans for the future? Do you do you want to continue representing conflict throughout? I think you just said that you wanted to look into other stations of the displacement of the journey as well. So there will be more to come uh, from that point of view. But uh, we are quite curious to hear what else you're, you're working on, you're, you're, you're planning on working on. Yes, I mentioned before about contemporary conflicts, trying to think about some work. So I, I'm not personally involved, but I don't think that should exclude one from making work about um, a contemporary conflict. One thing that I have been thinking of is what, what women do in the way of creative, um, creative things during war or, because I know my mother, when they were in the camps, they sewed. <laughs> They, uh, they eventually got sewing machines, but before then they were just busy sewing some clothes to wear. And what other things like that, that were just ordinary activities in extraordinary circumstances, but they just managed to keep doing. It, yes, it's, it's turning my attention to contemporary conflicts and seeing if I can make work around those. That would be something to, to try and do. That all of this sounds fascinating, and I think it's fair to say we're already very much looking forward to seeing uh, your your future artwork and uh, to going back to the work you've already um, created now um, uh, after our discussion here and look at it again um, with uh, sort of new new eyes. Um, Diana, thank you so much for this um, this wonderful discussion. Um, it's been absolutely great. Um, it's been a, a great pleasure speaking to you and you have surely given us and our listeners a lot to think about. So thank you again for coming uh, on the podcast and sharing your experience of, of representing, visualizing war and uh, of all the implications of, of creating this kind of artwork, but also of the, the messages that are in, in this kind of artwork with us here today. Thank you very much, because... Um your questions um, have got me thinking about things too that I hadn't thought about so thank you very much. And a big thank you from me as well Diana it's been fascinating as Nicholas said to think through the way in which you are visualizing war and also helping other people visualize it in fresh and interesting ways. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us again we hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Diana Forster as much as we have. Just a reminder that you can go to her website to find out some more about her work and also look at our blog on the Visualising War website where we're showcasing a few items of her artwork that she's very generously shared with us. And I think, Diana, listeners in the Oxford area might actually get a chance to view some of your art in person this autumn at the North Wall in Oxford. Is that right? That's right. Um, at the end of September, the North Wall, um, I will be showing a lot of the work I've been talking about. That's very exciting. I hope the pandemic doesn't bodge that yet again. Do go along if you can and also keep tuning in to the Visualising War podcast. Next time we'll be talking to a Roman military historian, Dr John Coulston, about ancient war art. And if you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook or any platform of your choice. Just search for Visualising War. And you can check out our website as well on the University of St Andrews Classics page or get in touch with us directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young and the show was mixed by Zofia Guertin. Thank you all for listening.